0: Welcome to TNS, The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner, titled The Long Dark, Tending to the Soul in Unknown Territory.
1: Welcome, everybody. My name is Kira Epstein. I am the program coordinator for The New School at Commonweal. And we are here under this big top. This is our brand new tent that we're using for outdoor event spaces uh, so that we can be comfortable and safe in coming months, no matter what may come. Michael and I welcome Francis and are so honored that he's willing to be here with us. So thank you for doing that and for talking about the long dark, what you're calling the long dark. And if you have questions for Michael and Francis, I will read them out at the end of the conversation so that you can be here with us as well. So thank you all for joining and welcome.
2: Francis Weller. welcome back to the new school.
3: Very glad to be here. Good to be back on uh, familiar ground.
2: Francis, how many years have we been co-leading the Cancer Health Program together?
3: I first began in 2013, so I guess eight years now. Hmm. Yeah. And about how many
2: retreats have we done together? 15? 15. 15. So for 15 weeks over the last eight years, Francis Savai and I have sat together in the living room uh, with eight participants in the Cancer Help Program. We just did our 212th Cancer Help Program, the first one outdoors. Imagine just moving the whole Cancer Help Program, week long program outdoors. And we've sat together and uh, co led the programs, um, including the very uh, memorable Wednesday night program on death and dying. Yes. Um, and um, Francis, it's, you know, it's a real honor in my life to be friends and to work with you. Uh, you and I both know that for the ancients, uh, friendship was the highest form of human relationship. And that is because friends in the true sense, ask nothing of each other other than to accompany each other in this journey. Um, And so it is disencumbered of all the contractual Mm. ways in which we um, seek to live together. And to um, have both a friendship and then this partnership in the Cancer help Program, Uh, you asked me uh, to write the introduction to your extraordinary book, which I commend to everybody, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and the Sacred Work of Grief. Uh, You wrote a second book, The Threshold Between Loss and Revelation, and a third book, In the Absence of the Ordinary, Essays in a Time of Uncertainty, and you're at work on a fourth book, which I truly look forward to, The Alchemy of Initiation, Soul Work and the Art of Ripening. You've introduced the healing work of ritual to many thousands of people, many thousands of people. And I have many friends who've been to your healing rituals and have participated myself and know that you really are a master of of that kind of healing ritual among among the the great masters of our time. You founded and direct Wisdom Bridge, which offers opportunities to integrate the wisdom of indigenous cultures with insights from Western poetic, psychological, and spiritual traditions. And you've developed a style of what you call soul-centered psychotherapy. You have a series of audio series on it, which uh, I think are remarkable. Your writings have appeared in many journals and anthologies, in The Sun, The Otney Reader, Cosmos Journal. And of course, you give talks all over the place. you, you say uh, that in your private practice as a psychotherapist since 1983, so almost 40 years, 38 years, you specialize in grief work, shame, addiction, depression, and men's issue. And you say of your style of working with people, soul-centered psychotherapy, this approach to working with the wounds and challenges we face restores soul as the primary focus. What this means is that I place less emphasis on the resolution of issues and more on the development of a richly textured textured soul life. When we listen to soul, to what is latent in the symptoms of depression, anxiety, or addiction, we hear a more subtle voice calling out for attention. Only then do we come to understand the wisdom hidden in suffering. I'm going to read that again because this is the heart of a lot of wisdom work. Only then do we come to understand the wisdom hidden in the suffering. Only then do we see what our soul has been asking of us all along. Once granted, the symptoms often abate, leaving us deepened by the encounter with soul. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> So, our topic today is uh, living into the long dark. And you've written uh, an extraordinary essay for uh, Dwayne Elgin's new book as an introduction, Choosing Earth, Uh, a 10-page essay which I would commend to everybody as I would commend the book. But let's just start uh, for a moment with... uh, What you were seeking to say in that essay uh, with which you introduced Wayne Elgin's book, what does it mean to you to live into this long dark? Um, Partly what I'm
3: trying to say in the essay or the preface is that uh, we've left ordinary time. We've left the chronic addiction to increase, to rising, to success, to being uh, dominant. The heroic quest has basically come to an end. And that this long dark is really a period of descent. That we are dropping below the surface of the common cultural fixations of success and achievement and uh, you know purchases and and, uh, this is a time of shedding this is a time of letting go this is a time of endings and we're not comfortable with those we like the old formulas we like the old strategies but they're all collapsing and we're seeing that in Racial issues and gender issues and economic issues. Uh, Certainly we're seeing it in climate. Um, So what I was trying to say in this essay was that we need to develop the capacities to endure a prolonged period of uncertainty, of being outside of the familiar and being willing to to cultivate a new way of seeing in the dark. And the other part I really wanted to try to get across was that uh, this is an invitational space. We don't know what's gonna happen. And there's a possibility that this time of descent is actually a time of initiation for the species. Um, it's a rough initiation. You know, it's not one that we wanted to undergo, but it's one that we have now been thrown into. And we have an opportunity, I don't know how strong an opportunity to use this time to fortify our relationships to soul, to one another, and ultimately to this planet. And if we can do that, we just might, uh, in the long run, in the long dark, seed something possible for the generations that are yet to come. We won't see that time. That's why I'm calling it the long dark. Most of us here will not see the end of this process, but it's up to us to seed it, to begin it, to do whatever we can to ripen our own lives, our relationships in ways that can fortify something that's sustainable long-term. So those that are maybe not even born yet might find their place in this world but there might still be a world here for them to,
2: to engage. So for those, let's just start with some very simple nomenclature questions. When you speak of a soul-centered psychotherapy, or uh, when you speak of uh, long dark as a time when soul emerges, many people really aren't familiar with what you or we mean by soul. It's given many definitions, but what do you mean by soul?
3: Well, I'm not speaking about it in the uh, metaphysical, religious sense. I'm talking about it in a a, a, a psychological sense. Psyche, the word psyche, is the Greek word for soul. So to engage soul means to engage psyche, to, to engage our own deep, our own depths. So when I talk about the long dark, uh, we could say that the fixation of the rising and now the introduction of descent, descent takes us into the territory that is soulful. Soul has to do with what is low, what is close to the ground, what is vulnerable, what is weak, what is close to our, our tenderness, our grief. Uh, it isn't about strength or control or, or rising, it is really about dropping down to the ground. And that's where we, we are being taken, down into a place where humility is much more noble than mastery, where entanglement is more precious than entitlement, where responsibility is more precious than rights. This is the territory that soul takes us into. Soul lives in the entanglement between us and this incredible sensual, erotic place we call Earth, and between friendships. Mm -hmm. That's where soul manifests itself most Mm. explicitly. Um, We could spend days, in fact, I spent 10 weeks trying to outline what soul means. Uh, I don't think we ever got there, but uh, soul is this multifaceted, multidimensional experience it has to do with beauty, imagination, ritual, uh, grief, elderhood, uh, community. Those are the territories that soul gets enmeshed in, and it's a, it's a complementarity to spirit. Spirit rises, likes to t- to speak about the unification, the unity, the one, where soul likes to get into the mess of it all, And the in the fray, and the the multiplicity, the com- complex territory of, of, of
2: engagement. So both of us have learned a great deal from the great archetypal psychologist James Hillman. Uh, so in that map where spirit ascends and soul stays close to the body and to suffering and so on, is there, in, in Hillman's sense or in your own sense, a place where you would place ego? Well, I, w- I would
3: use the term self, self. that yeah. um, both spirit and soul are dependent upon something to translate that. Right. I mean, soul is utterly dependent upon me mm-hmm. to express it. It can be a very insistent presence. You know, I when you read off that bio of mine, uh, God, why do I have to talk about grief and shame and... You know defeat. I don't want to write about that stuff. Why couldn't I be the joy guy? You know why couldn't you know the happiness guy, but my soul claimed me to talk about those things, and so I've had to be faithful to that, and that soul is utterly dependent upon me to to do that. Mm-hmm. Without a self was what Yeats's poem, "The Dialogue of Self and Soul." Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. There's a dialogue between me and soul on every given day. It's moods, it's uh, dreams, it's images, it's fantasies, it's it's suffering. I pay attention to that every single day of my life. That's kind of how I orient my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's partly what provides a sense of meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. to my life.
2: You had a beautiful quote early in in your essay, in the introduction to Dwayne Elgin's book, from Hillman. Uh, Could you say it for us? Yeah, Hillman
3: um, wrote, uh, the world and the gods are dead or alive according to the condition of our souls. The world and the gods are dead or alive according to the condition of our souls. So when you see a world that is dying what is it saying about the condition of our souls? We have neglected soul. Even psychology is neglected soul. It's, I, I would call it a selfology now. It's, so, it's so, so focused on self-improvement, self-development. That's fine. But where is the soul? So our souls end up feeling empty, neglected, bereft. Uh, and when we lose touch with soul, we become... We feel emptied. And why are we the largest consuming culture on the planet? Because in a sense, we feel emptied. And that emptiness, we try to fill it with every possible gadget and toy and car and TV show and addictions, and but we never feel full. Because what we crave are the primary satisfactions the things that shaped us over thousands and thousands of years, which is what gave shape to psyche. Friendship. Being together in times of grief and, and weeping together. Giving thanks together. Sharing meals together. you know, Being under the stars together. Listening to the great stories being told. When those things are being satisfied, we don't want a new cell phone. We're not craving the next gadget. We are primarily satisfied. And you know, when people are here for the Cancer Help Program, we get up in the morning and we share food together. We share dreams in our circles. We share our sufferings and our yearnings and our disappointments and our failures. We share the whole gambit of what it means to be alive and being in this body.
2: Hmm.
3: No one's wondering what's on TV tonight. We're no, we're, we're living inside of primary satisfaction.
2: Yeah. You, know. you know, I... My my work and yours, Francis, as you know, have many deep links. Both, of course, in the Cancer Help Program and in the work of Commonweal for forty-five years in deep intentional healing through the Cancer Help Program and healing circles and many other ways. But you also know that a preoccupation of mine for almost as long has been with planetary healing and. Yes. Uh, So as you described it, and and I think your language is really beautiful, the long dark, Um, uh, we've been working on uh, what we now call the global poly crisis uh, uh, for many years. I think 30 years ago, or maybe even 40, I wrote an essay called The Age of Extinctions and the Emerging Environmental Health Movement, which basically said, Guess what, folks? We're living in another of the great ages of extinctions, and how are we going to turn this around? And I said, you know, we're going to need a, an environmental health movement, and I my bet is it's going to be led primarily by women. And uh, that was before the language of the environmental health movement was around, and so what was then called the toxics movement, because my wife Cheryl Patton works a lot on toxics we all have here for many years. <laughs> Uh, you know, starting the a lot of uh, campaigns on toxics uh, became the environmental health and justice movement, and and that has had a, a, a really a substantial impact. But while we win many uh, individual victories, we're clearly losing the war. You know, for a better world, and um, so it became clearer and clearer to me, particularly over the last five years. That what we're facing, the way the world looks at it, is we've got climate change, we've got COVID, and we've got inequality. Those are the three headline issues. And so the effort in Glasgow right now with the COP uh, conference on climate change, the effort is to address um, climate and inequality. You know, but. That is such a vast oversimplification of what's going on, because in truth, uh, there are, the way we count, perhaps two dozen global stressors, environmental stressors, social stressors, technological stressors, and financial economic stressors. And these global stressors are interacting with increasing velocity and totally unpredictable outcomes. And it is, uh, uh, it is what is called in the uh, sociological literature, actually, a man named Wes Churchman, whose son, Josh Churchman, lives in Bolinas, his great fisherman. And I think Wes used to live here, too. But he introduced the, the, the term, the sociological term, that something is, quote, a wicked problem. And a wicked problem is a problem that there is no known solution. There isn't a clear way out because you don't know. You may try this or you may try that. You don't know whether it's going to make it better or worse mm-hmm. in the long run. And so when we started this work, people, even five years ago, people said, what are you talking about the global polycrisis? You know, focus on something doable. But then the climate thing became an emergency and along came COVID, which, quote, nobody expected. And so the climate emergency and COVID became poster childrens for the polycrisis, and people began to get it. So you're, t- you're calling it the long dark. It has so many names. You know, it's, it's called the global problematique. It's called the human dilemma. Uh, some people talk very beautifully, poetically, about navigating the great unraveling. It's called the great simplification it's called the, the U-turn economy. So there are all these different narratives about what the polycrisis is, and there won't be a single narrative, because the polycrisis, in effect, is everything. And the one thing that we know is that a complete metamorphosis of what it means to be human on Earth is taking place, and we can't stop it, mm-hmm. right? No escape. No so escape. I love the long dark, but if you were talking to some of the techno-optimists, for example, you know, the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musk and so on and so forth, they see a future of colonizing space, you know? And so there are all these different visions. If you talk to people uh, whose lives are getting better or, you know, parts of the world where people are optimistic or feel good about their country and all kinds of things like that, There's optimism, there's hope, and then there's depression, and then there's this vision that you take of, yes, this is the long dark, but I mean something different by the long dark than despondency and depression. I do. Yeah. So let's go further into that because you talked about this entry into the long dark as a rough initiation. And in the cancer help program, you would also say to the participants, mm-hmm. cancer has been a rough initiation for you. Right. So say more about how, because this isn't just an individual thing, right? No. And not for everybody, not for the techno-optimists, not for, you know, all people are, you know, all excited about the U-turn economy or believe that we're going to figure it out one way or another. It's going to get better, right? Say more about, for those who are grieving this age of extinctions and grieving this metamorphosis, which we can't stop, how can we navigate ourselves in this great unraveling, to use that poetic term? How can we navigate in the great unraveling in order to move ourselves through the dark toward a rich, textured soul life. You're
1: getting 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Okay.
3: All right, I'll do my best. First, let me just say, um, these are difficult topics, okay? There is potential for a lot of panic, grief, fear, anxiety, I just want to invite you all to just monitor your own bodies right now as we talk about this material uh, because it can be overwhelming. We're facing some utterly overwhelming material the, on the planet. So just be, just be careful and be, be sensitive to your own body and heart and soul right now, okay? Uh, the reason I like the, the term, the idea of the long dark is that certain things can only happen in the dark. I am a big fan of alchemy. And alchemy, talk about different phases of the work of the alchemical process. And one of the phases is called the Negreto, the blackening. And the blackening is a period that actually is required in order for soul to be given shape. That soul work can't even begin until there's been a blackening. And I bet you everyone in this, I was going to say room, what do we call this, Uh, this this tent, the big tent. The tent of meeting. The tent of meaning. and also all of you online. I bet you every one of us has had times where we felt this, this pall of darkness come over us. And we were taken down to our knees. We felt incredibly vulnerable or broken or lonely or sad. We might not even know why. Well, we're in a collective dark night of the soul right now. And there's purpose to that. There's meaning in that. There's work that can only go on in the dark of letting go of old paradigms, old structures, old ideologies. You know, there's, there's typically a kind of a bifurcated response to any radical circumstance. One of them is, how do I collaborate with what is happening in the collective psyche? The other one is to resist it at all costs and to fortify the old structures. And we're seeing that right now in our experience of the United States. There's a lot of reification of old patterns and old ideologies of dominance and control. Okay. That might give them, give some sense of security but the long run that's not going to get us across this threshold of change that's why the image of the rough initiation is so valuable Uh, initiation basically initiates three things one of them is there's a a radical severance from the world that we once knew and that's what we're experiencing i think COVID was kind of the uh, warm-up band it's it's kind of recognizing that we have, we have lost, we have left the ordinary world. The second thing that happens in initiation is that there's a, a, a radical change in your sense of identity. Uh, I think part of the hidden grace of COVID is that it's loosened the fiction of individualism. We're all in this together. No matter what you think, we're all being affected by this. And it's not just me anymore handling my own individual life we are in this collectively so my sense of identity has begun to loosen and to become more permeable i'm connected to you and to you and to you and and you know everything else around me this is a quick aside but i was i was going to bed one night um just before the election full of despair i was just depressed, that we were going to repeat the same choices. And something, just as I was about to crawl into bed, something turned my body around and took me back to my, one of my bookshelves and reached up, pulled a collection of essays off by Linda Hogan, uh, who's a Chickasaw elder author. And I opened the book to all my relations. And I realized in that moment I had forgotten all my relationships. I forgot that I was entangled with the stars and the moon and the owls out, out the, outside and the, the lichen and the, and the, you know, and the trees and, and the turtles. And I forgot that. And the moment I remembered those filaments of connection, the despair began to lift.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner.
3: Part of what I think we have to do in the long dark is remember how incredibly entangled we are with everything. That nothing exists outside of our relationship to it. You know, we're always inside of it. I have no idea if I'm close to the question you asked or not.
2: um, We're not here to answer questions.
3: Okay, that's true. Uh,
2: Did I get my ten minutes in? uh,
3: Anything else we want to say about that?
2: Well... I think that, well, first of all, I think that's a beautiful response. There's one more thought. Uh,
3: part of what I love about the long dark, if we can love that, is that um, it invites us into the territory of not knowing. There's a beautiful word in the Inuit tradition called Karzaluni anybody ever hear that word Karzaluni Q-A-R-R-T S-I-L-U-N-I Karzaluni and the word means sitting together quietly in the dark waiting for something unexpected to happen wow we are not going to figure our way out of this one I don't think I think the problems are way too complex, but I think we can not sit together quietly in the dark and become receptive to some new imagination, mm. some new image, some new metaphor, some, something that you know, begins to catch a glint of where we might need to walk together. This practice in the Inuit tradition is done before every hunting season because they have to wait until they get the song of the whale before they can go and ask it to sacrifice its life. So they have to sit quietly in the dark and wait until the next whale song is given to them. I think that's where we are. We must learn how to sit in the darkness together and not try to heroically figure this out, but to become patient enough to listen to the dreaming earth What if the Earth is a gigantic dreaming creature and we've stopped listening in our arrogance, in our hubris? What if we began to listen again to the dream of the Earth, as Thomas Berry would call it, as many traditional cultures would call it? The Earth is a dreaming creature. And so we have to slow down enough to practice that togetherness. Which is, I also think, another one of the healing elements of what's happening right now is is that we are beginning to, to question uh, the ideology of, of uh, my individualistic life,
2: mm-hmm. that it's not true. You know, many people here today and many people listening now or who will listen in the future, the grief about the earth is real. But foreground for many people in many situations is grief about their individual situations and losses. And, uh, and in your book, uh, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, uh, you have an extraordinary set, which I think might be useful to uh, uh, introduce here, about the different, the different forms that grief takes. So could you just introduce us to those gates or whatever we should call them, because then we can weave those gates into the
3: conversation. Yes, I sat with many, many hundreds and hundreds of people in grief rituals. You begin to hear all the different ways grief occupies our beings. We're familiar with the first gate of grief, which was losing someone or something that you love that's the only grief that really is acknowledged culturally. That's the grief when someone can say to you, I'm sorry for your loss, or I heard that your marriage dissolved, or, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. We get that grief reflected back to us. The other four gates of grief almost receive no attention at all. The second gate of grief is the parts of us that have never known love. And we all have pieces of our lives that were either shamed or not welcomed in our families or our religious situations or educational situations. And so we had to cleave off parts of our being. We couldn't be angry or we couldn't be sad or we couldn't be too exuberant. We couldn't be too sensual or we couldn't be too exuberant. Whatever it was, we were told pretty clearly what an acceptable self looks like. And so we, because the need to belong is so great, particularly as a child, we will shape a self that matches the expectations. And we will cleave these parts off. The problem is that these parts of us that we cut away from us, we don't just do that neutrally. We begin to adapt the same attitudes towards these parts of us that they were treated with. So we hold them with contempt. I remember going to my therapist when I first started really seriously going to therapy first thing out of my mouth to Michael was, um, Michael is my therapist, not Michael. The uh, first words out of my mouth was, I want you to help me get rid of some parts of me. As if these were despicable pieces of me, weakness, neediness, you know, my sensitivity. These are all despicable parts of me. I had to get rid of them. And of course I failed miserably at the task, thankfully, because these are the parts that made me most human. You know, the redemption of these outcasts was the healing. The problem is we can't grieve for something that we hold with contempt. So much of therapy is really about repairing the relationship to what has been outcast. And beginning to make amends to these parts of ourselves that we've learned to judge and shame and reject. Third gate of grief is the, the sorrows of the world. And this one is becoming more and more what comes into the grief-gatherings. Actually, it's becoming more and more what comes into my office every day. I'm hearing less and less about personal histories, and more and more terror and grief about what's happening in our neighborhood, what's happening to our culture, what's happening to the planet. In fact, I think the patient is now the planet. That's not me. So the sorrows of the world are becoming more and more uh, weighted in our psyches. And if you pay any attention at all, you feel the sorrows of the world most every, any given day. The fourth gate of grief is what we expected and did not receive. This one, I didn't even know how to name it. But when we would gather in circle and we would sing together and dance together, and weep together, and share food, and all that, people began talking, using the language of village. Oh, you know, I wish I had a village like this. And you begin to recognize that we all long for that. We all came here, as R.D. Lang said, we all come here as as Stone Age children. We all arrive here with the same set of expectations that we had 200,000 years ago, to be to wake up in the morning and see this many pairs of eyes looking back at you and asking you what you dreamt last night and going out to gather firewood and that tonight there's going to be stories around the fire and that's what we expected and almost none of it materialized. And so in this great absence, which we tend to blame ourselves for, like what did I do wrong that I feel so empty, that I feel so lonely? I must have done something wrong because there is this expectation of fullness But what if it's not your personal failure, but a cultural amnesia? I say the two primary sins of Western culture are amnesia and anesthesia. We forget and we go numb. And you go numb in part because of what we've forgotten. So when we gather together for a grief ritual, I say, isn't it strange we need a workshop on grieving? But we could say the same thing. Well, isn't it strange we need a workshop on creativity? Or on relationships and love? Or on, you know being in our bodies what we're talking about is this great amnesia what it is we've forgotten how to be human beings so that's the fourth gate of grief and the last gate of grief is uh, what I call ancestral grief is uh, and this one the more I sit with ancestral grief the more I realize that I think all griefs are ancestral grief Uh, that what a, you know, my wounds have to do with shame and feeling unworthy, that I felt somehow my family did not see me. But where did that story begin? How many generations back can I go when that, when that loss began to really settle into my family lineage? So in some ways, I'm, what I'm grieving is ancestral. What I'm grieving didn't begin now. It began, as Rumi would say, in some other tavern It began a long time ago, when we began to sift out of being embedded in a living cosmology between people, planet, and place. And we began to become more and more focused on the individualistic ideology. And we began to kind of sever ourselves from that. And the other part of this ancestral grief is what happened when a lot of our European ancestors arrived here on this continent to the traditional peoples on this planet. And then the importation of slavery. And we've never reconciled those griefs. We've never even addressed those griefs. So we're still, as a culture, struggling with the unmetabolized grief of over 400 to 500 years of colonization and domination. And that's where we are right now.
2: So well, those are the five gates. That so let me just first of all thank you, and secondly, when you asked me to write the introduction to that book, I just I just felt I knew you well by that time, and I was very honored that you asked me. But um, I felt that this was such an original contribution. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you know anyone else who has captured five gates of grief that way. So it's really a, a quite original piece of work. So if we just sort of take that in, the, the first, and you'll correct me if I get this wrong, the first one is the grief that we all think of. You lost a, a, a beloved friend or partner or, or parent. I'm sorry for your loss. That's the... the, the yeah, I, I call it everything you love, you will lose. Right. And then what do you call the second, briefly?
3: The places that I've not known love.
2: The places that have not known love in ourselves. Yes. And how you can't grieve what you hold in contempt. Yes. And therefore, to recover those, you have to see them as valued parts of yourself in order to grieve. Yes. Okay. And then the third, what do you call? Uh, The sorrows of the world. The sorrows of the world. Uh, and, And then, as you said, the... The planet has become the patient. Yes. And more and more, that's what is coming into your office. Yes. And then the fourth, what do you call what you expected but did not get? Did not
3: receive, yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, and and there you speak of uh, just all the parts of us that uh, come into the world full of hope and joy and then are shaped uh, in a way that you know we can't. Fine, it's shaped by absence, yeah. But what does not
3: materialize, we shape a, you know, we shape something that tries to adapt to
2: emptiness, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Do I actually have that wrong as the thing about uh, maybe that was no, that's right. Okay, I've got that, and that's where you talked about amnesia and anesthesia, yes, as two of the responses that we have to what we expected but did not get, yeah. And then finally, ancestral grief uh, and and everything that you've described that goes with that. So I just hope all of us really hold these five gates of grief. Because grief is such a deep part of all of our lives. And usually we just think of it in terms of our loss and then other losses. But to hold it the way Francis holds it, the individual losses... uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the parts of ourselves uh, that weren't welcome, the griefs of the world, what we expected but did not get, and the ancestral griefs. Somehow, you know, when you face an intractable set of problems, one of the ways of working with it is to work out what are the pieces. Uh, in the Cancer Help Program, we do this regularly, you know, when we talk about the evening on death and dying, one of the things we we say is, um, what are your beliefs about this? What are your feelings about this? And, uh, And if you fear this, what is it that you actually fear? Do you fear death itself? Do you fear not death but dying? Do you fear neither death itself nor the dying process, but actually something that has not been done? Some part of you that... So there's something about this articulation of the different parts, as you've done with grief, that makes it easier to begin to be skillful or wise in relationship to it.
3: And one of the things I frequently talk about and I've done online programs, if you're interested, is an apprenticeship with sorrow. That when you really look at these five gates and you're still... cloistered into your own individual response to them, you're never going to be able to digest them. You have to take up an apprenticeship. You have to begin to see that grief is going to be ever-present in your life. It's never going to go away. Even if it's a first-gate grief, you're going to be mourning their absence for the rest of your life, right? I mean, we've all lost people. And they don't suddenly that grief doesn't suddenly just stop. That will be there for the rest of your life. Grief is not just an emotion, but it's a core human faculty. And very few of us are trained in this faculty. So when grief comes to our door, which it's coming now every day in multiple fashions, we don't know how to turn toward it. So that's why the anesthesia comes in. We, on our own, And with the magnitude of what's coming, we shut down. And I I want us to say a word of praise for amnesia, for, for numbness. Because if we didn't, particularly if we're trying to deal with it alone, we would be overwhelmed. Our small little boat of self would capsize instantly. So don't judge yourself if you go numb. But just ask yourself, what do I need in order to be able to turn into those waves of grief. Well, one thing we need is, is community. Grief has always been communal. In our long story as a species, it has never been a private affair. And suddenly in the last, I don't know, 100, 200 years, it's become very private. Even our funerals have become so, uh, what's the word, anemic, that we really are not allowed uh, you can see some of that vitality still when you go to a, a funeral where, where, where it's held in a, a community of color. There, they're still vibrating. There's still energy. They're still weeping. They're on their knees. They're, they're holding each other. We uh, get very apologetic if a tear slips out. and Sorry, didn't mean to lose control. We have to lose control, but we don't have much faith in grief. That's why this apprenticeship is so critical, is to restore our faith in it. It's not there to take you hostage. It's there to ripen you as a full human being so that you can be the apprentice. Let me just quickly say, I know we're probably running out of time, but the idea of the apprenticeship is valuable here as well because you know that the old language of apprenticeship, man, you, you undertook something for a long time, right? If you were an apprentice to a weaver or to a carpenter or to a a stonemason or to anybody, that was a long study, period of study. It could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And at the end of that apprenticeship, you would be given the title of master. You are a master weaver, a master craftsman. In the work of soul, the apprenticeship of sorrow does not lead to mastery, it leads to elderhood. That is the outcome. Is that if you undertake this apprenticeship with sorrow, what is ripened in you psychically over that long study and the long engagement with grief and its difficult, heavy, leaden material is that you are, you are ripened into an elder. And isn't that what we need right now? Isn't that what we need walking in the streets? Our adult human beings we are not afraid of the, of the grief and the rage in the young ones, because they have every right to feel outraged right now, every right to feel overwhelmed with sorrow, and we're not there to hold them, because we're so either anesthetized or preoccupied, and that is really our moral and soulful responsibility, is to become, you know capable of turning our face back into the winds of of collective sorrow take up the apprenticeship
2: that might be a good point at which just to open this up and engage in dialogue with our uh, friends here so kira epstein has a uh, a microphone i will encourage you when you ask questions or make comments to keep them brief so that we can have space to hear as many voices as possible.
1: So Michael, I just wanna bring into the space that um, in the category of utterly overwhelming and uh, the pall of darkness, we lost internet connection altogether at Commonweal for 10 minutes. (laughs) So we lost all of the people that were on the webinar and um, 31 of them have stalwartly come back on, and there is one question from the internet, but i just I just wanted to you know bring that into the room to say that they're they suffered greatly, and we had our own little polycrisis going on here so.
2: well, and uh let me just say in that regard, <clears throat> this is happening everywhere right now, um, everything supply chains uh everything else uh. I was just talking to my physician yesterday who's trying to, you know, get tests and stuff together for people. Things aren't working very well right now, you know? So uh, this uh, really is just an opportunity to acknowledge that what is going on right now is uh, part and parcel of it all. So Kira, do you have questions from the thing? We
1: have have one question here uh, from Susan. And she says, I personally would be interested to know more about how Francis supports others in their grief while also holding space for his own. Can one truly grieve while supporting others in their
3: grief at the same time?
2: Could you repeat the question also, Francis? <clears throat> uh, as far
3: as I understood it, uh, how do I work with people dealing with grief and
2: hold, his own. hold
3: my own at the same time? No. Uh, I don't. I uh, When I'm holding a grief ritual, I am not tending on my own grief. Mm. Um, I might feel it come up. I might feel a moment of it touching me. There might be some tears, but my job is much more focused on creating the containment field that's strong enough to hold the intense waves of grief that are gonna be coming into the room, that are coming in the room. Some of you have been there with me. Um, what comes in the room is powerful. And if I'm caught in my own grief at that moment, there's too many leaks in the container. Uh, So alchemy would say that the vessel has to be well sealed in order for the heat of that moment to build adequately, to help people get to the edges of letting go of control. It takes a lot of faith and trust to let go of control, to fall to your knees and weep side by side with other people. You know, so you no, know, that's my job. The good news is, I also have my own places where I take my grief. So, I definitely have spots that are capable of holding me, and if I didn't, I would, uh, you know, I'd be drowning
2: in it as well. So, who has questions? Please raise your hand.
1: I have been reflecting uh, in my elderhood and my service to future generations. Uh, how to grieve on that level? How to get up each morning, which I have no problem getting up happy and singing. But um, where we where we are in the in the, uh, in the flow of time as a species?
3: Did you get okay. that? Yeah, I think so. Thank you. The core of it, I guess, is that uh, where we are collectively is a, basically a species uh, biodiversity collapse. How do you, how do I define grief in the in the face of that? Is that a fair paraphrase? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, we we don't know what's going to happen. What we do know is that if my heart refuses to acknowledge that, I won't be present to participate in any acknowledgement of it, and then those disappearances will go out silently and unacknowledged. So it's our job to witness and to keep our hearts as open as possible to every disappearance, every silencing. So when we drive past something like a clear cut or we see the you know the body on the side of the road of the of the fox or the we acknowledge that. If my heart closes to that, I dishonor that disappearance. It's a moral, it's also good manners that I do whatever I can to acknowledge the sorrows of the world right now. This is again part of that apprenticeship that we have to keep acknowledging what's going on. And that takes great courage, which the word literally means full heart, right? Courage. Full heart. So our hearts have to... And grief is really about love. Grief is a, my way of acknowledging that something has penetrated me and has meaning to me and I'm going to miss you. you know? So grief is in, incredibly entangled with this, the crisis we're facing right now around biodiversity. And it might be the broken heart that has any possibility of salvaging anything rather than the strong, you know, heroic approach. I think it's the broken heart. Because it's the broken heart. What was that, Joanna Macy? It's the broken heart. It's the heart that's broken open that can contain the whole universe. So we have to be willing to let our hearts be broken open by great loss. Thank you for that question.
2: Princess, I don't know if you can talk about this, but because we're working in the moment, something happened to you. Yeah. Can you say what happened to you then? No. Or not?
3: I don't know if there's language. If there's just... um, The... the, the, uh, Distance between me and otherness is getting shorter and and smaller. Uh, I tell the story in the grief book about uh, in 2010 when the Gulf oil spill happened. How I would wake up many, many nights sobbing and hearing the sound of the shorebirds suffocating from oil. And the cries of dolphins and... uh, it's 2,000 miles away, but to my soul, it is immediate. So what, again, whatever fiction we had of separation between us and world, uh, we are becoming more and more, hopefully becoming more and more permeable to how I am world. World is me. You know, There's no separation. And as I open myself to that, how can you not weep? out of love and sorrow and oh, that's all I can say.
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Francis Weller and host
2: Michael Lerner. Do you you do a lot of speaking? Do those moments Are those familiar moments to you when you're speaking?
3: Yeah. Especially when I start to speak about um, generations to come.
2: Mm.
3: I have two, Judith and I have two very young grandchildren, five and eight, and every time I see them and hold them and watch them, and, you know, I some part of me is just aching about what they are inheriting. So I try to address that in the preface I wrote for Dwayne's book, that all I can do is keep turning towards them and saying, I see you, and I see the pain you're in, the grief you're in, and I also see your beauty and your courage, and you are dreaming things up that my generation, our generation, never dreamt of before. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say we don't know. But every time I get close to that edge, it's, um, it's hard to
2: mm. keep speaking. Yeah, Thank you for yeah. being willing to say.
1: Stephanie asks, maybe can we have Francis recap his statement of a state of things as we lost connection, the end of striving, of successes, et cetera, as we lean into this time of soul and how
2: to hold the dark. Can you repeat the question?
3: Just just kind of re, recapitulate my thoughts about where we are right now as, and, not, and giving up this striving, ascending, rising period. Yeah, we are definitely in a period of descent. In both senses of that word, there's a lot of dissenting going on right now, right? Saying, no, enough, this is not right. So that word, descent, yes, but we're also in a time of dissent. Which is taking us down into the underworld, into the place that's not lit by, you know, everything that we're used to. So we're, we're on our knees. Some of the qualities of this under, underworld are humility, not knowing, deep listening, um, restraint. This is one of the hardest things for us to do is not rush into solution. Because I think the solutions that we would come up with are the ones that got us into the problem in the first place. So restraint, that goes back to that Carceluni idea of sitting quietly together, waiting patiently for something to arise. Just to hold back. In alchemy they say if if you open the vessel too soon you ruin the experiment. You have to let it ripen. And right now we've just begun... To recognize that we have left the daylight world, that we are in the underworld, and we have to develop the qualities of patience to understand what's being asked of us in this darkness. It's not more of the same. It's asking for a radical alteration in the way that we relate to one another, to the ground that we're that we walk upon and to the soul, to spirit. So something else has to come up out of this, out of the ground, what the um, Andalusian people would call. From the duende, the black soil, the black soul. Something has to come up out of the ground and inform us, maybe just to remind us what it looks like to be human beings walking in regard for the world.
2: I hope we got there. I'd like to explore a subject that I've been sitting with. We've talked about your work, Hillman's work a soul-centered psychotherapy, very much along the lines of where Hillman is. And Hillman doesn't have a lot of use for the ascending spirit dimension. So I want to speak up for spirit. Absolutely. Right? Because um, the fact of the matter is we just had a fall gathering here with 40 people, most of them young, wildly diverse people of all different ethnicities and gender orientations and so on and so And one of the things that one notices, they're getting pregnant, they're having babies, and a lot of them have a lot of hope about the world, right? I hope so. And they don't necessarily share, not that this is what you mean, but they don't necessarily share the doom, gloom, uh, you know, earth as hospice orientation that a lot of people associate With the long dark. Not that that's what you mean. Not what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. So I just want to speak for that. So I think one of the things we need is we need really affirmative visions of where we're going, where Mm -hmm. we'd like to go. Mm -hmm. And I was with my friend Randy Hayes, who started Rainforest Action Network, who's an extraordinary, extraordinary man, who's been interested in the poly crisis for a long time. And Randy's vision, which I I think is shared by others, but he has a really good way of talking about it. He says he wants to see a world of um, continental networks of regional bioeconomies. He wants to see a world of continental networks of regional bioeconomies. Now, what I would add to that is I would say I would love to see a world of continental networks Of regional bioeconomies, each consisting of biolocal communities. So each regional biolocal economy would consist of a whole network within Mm -hmm. itself of Mm biolocal communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may be a very hard path to get there, but the fact remains that humanity is an incredibly weedy species. We can survive under all kinds of conditions, and it may get very, very rough. But the fact remains that we're not entirely likely to wipe humanity off the planet completely. It's more likely that in this metamorphosis, some form of humanity will be part of whatever emerges from this bottleneck of biodiversity that we're passing through, where we know that only a portion is going to make it through to the other side. So to me, the question is, how do we work with courage and fortitude and commitment? And how do we foster the resilience uh, that will enable us not to be paralyzed by the grief, the loss, the depression, and so on and so forth, and absolutely to welcome soul, and yet not be restricted to soul. That spirit is as important as soul, that even though this has been an ascendant culture that over-dramatizes a technological aspect of spirit, we need to reclaim spirit as well as soul. And we need to reclaim it in a different way so that it is not colonized by Mm -hmm. the economy, Mm -hmm. by technology, by finance, Mm -hmm. and so on. So I believe that to be possible. And even if it turns out not to be true, that's the side I want to be fighting for. You mm-hmm. know? I want to be fighting for the, the possibility that we can retain in this transformative period of time those aspects of being human that we believe in. Yeah. And it's going to be a fight. But it's a fight that we should welcome. Because we have no choice, no. and that's where we are. So I just wonder what reflections you have about that. I
3: don't, I am certainly not against spirit, by the way. <laughs> uh, um, I would like to see, the reason I focus so much on soul is that in the old cosmology, there were three layers. There was the spiritual layer There was called the the macrocosm. And then there was the mesocosm. And then the microcosm. There was the heavens and the earth. When we got rid of soul, we lost the relationship between spirit and matter. Hmm. And spirit became abstract and matter became dead. And when matter becomes dead, you can do anything you damn well please to it. You can strip mine it. You can clear cut it. It's just... Commodity. I want to see the mesocosm reimagined so that there can, so spirit can become, uh, spirit can matter and matter can become sacred again. So that conversation can be reignited again. And I think that's why one of the reasons why I speak so much about soul. I think that's why Hillman spoke. Hillman would say that's, that soul has always been the, the steps, stepchild between um, I forget the three, that self and spirit, spirit, self, and soul. Uh, spirit and self get lots of play. And soul has been the, the outcast. And so,
2: But I'm, it's possible that we move so much towards soul that we forget oh, spirit. I'm not worried about that in the least. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> We're so far away from that.
3: Um, so far away from that. But I do think that they, they want each other. Mm-hmm. There's beautiful paintings by William Blake of spirit and soul, kind of embracing each other. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Mead had that wonderful line. He says, spirit, "Soul is forever trying to get spirit laid." <laughs> you know, to, to come down to earth, to, to be here with the mess of it. So that would be a wonderful way yeah. to imagine yeah. but it. It's a conversation between those two, yeah. not antagonism, and certainly not separate. They feed each other. I think soul is in love with spirit. And spirit is in love with soul.
2: Hold that image. Soul is always trying to get spirit laid, right? (laughs) Well, Francis, any final closing thoughts? I I have loved this. I always find it uh, so rich to be in conversation with you. I look forward to our next Cancer Help Program. Me too. Um, And I just love the fact that, you know, when you and I prepare for these things, uh, we actually want to leave it alive and open. Actually, I wanted to ask you, you have a beautiful poem or fragment of a poem about a dark god. Could you, can you offer us that? Yeah.
3: It's a little fragment of a poem by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, the Austrian poet. He said, uh, and yet no matter how deeply I go down into myself, my God is dark. And like a webbing made of a hundred roots that drink in silence. And yet no matter how deeply I go down into myself, my God is dark. Like a webbing made of a hundred roots that drink in silence. So the last thing I would say um, is that uh, grief is always companioned when we open to it by gratitude and joy. It is not a depressive state. It is not a place of, oh, damn. It is a wild, vital creature. And when we are willing to engage it and let it have its way with us even a little bit, we become alive again. We feel animated, anima, soul. We feel alive again. And in that place, I have felt more joy since I began doing grief work than I had in the first two-thirds of my life. So I'm not saying that the long dark is going to be dour or depressive. It's going to be hard. But I hope we dance a lot and that we sing a lot and we do gratitude together and that we find our thin way to that other shore with hopefully leaving leaving enough food for the next generations to come, right? So thank you, Michael.
2: Thank you all. Francis Weller, psychotherapist, writer, soul activist, author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief, author of The Threshold Between Loss and Revelation, and author of In the Absence of the Ordinary, Essays in a Time of Uncertainty, and working on a fourth book, which we eagerly await. Me too. The Alchemy of Initiation, Soul Work and the Art of Ripening. Thank you all for being here with us. And let me just say again, uh, if you can find it in your hearts to continue to support the work of the New School, it matters. And uh, if there are people out there with the imagination to believe that this is really part of your life um, in a a deep way, um, this is a place where you can make a difference. We offer everything free. Uh, We work on the gift economy. And we're just deeply grateful to all of you that are able to join Francis in contributing his time and Judith in contributing her time as Francis's full partner in this work. Uh, And so um, it's a joy to be with you. Come back. For those of you who haven't been to Commonweal before, welcome to the Commonweal community. Uh, Find us online or come back for our events. Um, And um, let us live fully with our grief, with our joy, and with our commitment to building a better world together. Let's just end with a moment of silence together. Thank you all Thank you Francis Thank you Michael yeah. Thank you Kira Thank you Ken Thank you Jacob
0: You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner Thank you for listening to TNS The New School at Commonweal The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.